Well, I have a hunch that you guys want God to do something amazing in this church and in this community over this next year, right? You, you want God to do something big. You want to be able to say, you know what? I, I watched as God broke through, not only in our church, but into our community. Now, before we get into any of that stuff, before we go to the overflow of, of, of what we're talking about today, I want to give you a, a principle. It's a principle that we're going to be leaning into, and I want you to know what this principle is. This principle is probably one of the most powerful, transformational, inspirational leadership pr principles on the planet. Now, Here's, the, here's the, the thing about it. Every leader that you respect practices it. The ones that you don't, they don't. You can lead without this principle, but you can't be a leader worth following without it. You can't be a leader worth following unless you embrace it. And this principle, this principle is the one that explains in part how against all odds, a Jewish cult following a crucified teacher with no territory, no military, and no authority survived. Not only survived, but thrived, multiplied, and were embraced by those, by the empire that was bent on exterminating it. Jesus came to introduce something brand new to the world, for the world. Jesus brought this radical departure, this radical departure from the ways of the kingdom of this world. In regards to religion, it meant replacing all that was in place. The religious systems had come to, re to reflect the values of the, of the systems of this world, the kingdom paradigm of this world. And it was that paradigm that goes like this, it's top down. That paradigm where if you have might, it makes right. Where if you have all the money, you have all the power. The kingdom, the value system that Jesus came to introduce was upside down to replace those systems that were in place. Now we're jumping a little bit ahead of the story. And so what I want to start with this morning is this, of all of Jesus' miracles, there was one miracle in particular that caused, can I say a kerfuffle? <laughs> Not a great word, kerfuffle. A stir. It caused a little bit of an upsetness. Jesus, of all the miracles that he did, of all the things that, that he, he did as he did his ministry on earth, there was one miracle in particular that really caused some issues. It was that he raised Lazarus. Lazarus was well known in the community. And Lazarus, if you recall the 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 parable or the, uh, the miracle, it was this, that, that Lazarus was not just dead. He was dead, dead. Like, like he was entombed. He was embalmed. 
and there were witnesses, okay? It wasn't like, oh yeah, this is one of those cool little parlor tricks that happened, okay? This is actually this well-known man in, in the area had died. And he had not only died, he had been wrapped and placed and sealed, right? Now, all this happened in the area called Bethany. Now, because of what happened with this miracle where Jesus came and he called Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come out of there. And Lazarus came out live, talking, walking, eating, doing all the things you'd expect a live person to do, nothing that you'd expect a dead person to do. Remember, this is before the walking dead, okay? So Bethany became a tourist attraction. People wanted to see the man. They wanted to see this this guy that had died that is now walking around. They wanted to see the place. They wanted to talk with him. They wanted to see him. But here's what happened. Some of the people then shared what happened with the Pharisees. They said, hey, I don't know if you know, but this guy, Jesus, he just did something that we can't believe. And so somebody told them, and that's where we pick it up in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. You're not going to believe this. This dude, Lazarus, he was dead, dead, right? And now he's out and he's he's eating and he's doing all kinds of things. It all happened in Bethany. Did you know? Then the chief priests. And the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is like tantamount of calling a a meeting of the Supreme Court, okay? It's like calling to order this this huge convening governing body. And they they came for the sole purpose to discuss what had just happened with this man. Now, Nicodemus is there. Now, if you recall, just uh, before that time, Nicodemus was one of those guys that was interested in Jesus, but he didn't want to give up his standing. So he wanted to go to Jesus in the cover of night to understand if he was one worth following. So now Nicodemus is there. He's in, in part of all of this meeting of the, of the Sanhedrin. And here they are. And here's the dialogue. What are we accomplishing? This man, this Jesus, he's performing many signs. What what is it that we are accomplishing here? Because this guy, this Jesus, he's been going all throughout the area. He's been doing some things that we thought were kind of interesting, but now he did something that's very interesting. In fact, it's not a parlor trick. It's nothing like that. In fact, they called it exactly what it was, a sign. They knew what the actions of Jesus meant. And they knew that Jesus wasn't just a fly-by-night teacher. So they said, if we let him, if we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him. So they were starting then to have an idea an awful, horrible idea. And then they said, the Romans will come. The Romans will come and they will take away both our temple and our nation. They understood what we tend to miss. Jesus came to replace 
what was in place. They understood that the Romans would come and tear out every influence that they had. But they take away the temple and the nation. And in the end, that's exactly what Jesus did. He replaced what was in place. Yet, we tend to make so much. We tend to hang on to so much of what Jesus came to replace. So as a result of this meeting, as after they had all these ideas, this wonderful, horrible, awful idea to go and to make sure that Jesus never said another word, because then they said, we are going to take care of this man. So from that day, they plotted to take Jesus' life. They figured, listen, if you can't kill, if you can't beat him, kill him, right? If you can't beat him, just go ahead and take him out. It's kind of like a mob hit. I don't know. Anyway, so you can't beat him, you kill him. Jesus found this out. Maybe Nicodemus told him, Who knows? I think that's a pretty plausible idea. Nicodemus said, hey, listen, I don't know if you know this or not, but what you did with Lazarus, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. And they've decided that they're going to take you out. As a result, Jesus no longer moved publicly among the people of Judea. He stepped out of the the just running from place to place because Passover was almost there. John tells us that there were spies looking for Jesus. There were spies looking all over the place so if they could find him, so they could kill him, so they could get him, so they could arrest him, so they could make sure that this man didn't do what they knew that he was going to do. John says in chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Meanwhile, a large crowd, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was coming there and came not only because of him, but also because of Lazarus. So Jesus shows up in Bethany and the crowd says, hey, listen, we want to come see this guy because this guy did something amazing. But also, hey, if we can get Lazarus, you know, I have this Lazarus bobblehead that I want him to sign. He saw Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They figured, listen, if we can't just get this guy, if we, if we can't beat Jesus, we'll kill him. And honestly, let's just destroy the evidence, right? Let's destroy the evidence that anything new's happened because this was a real thing. Lazarus did raise from the grave. And they figured if we can get rid of the evidence, then our worries are over. But Jesus... He's about to replace what was in place. On account of him, that's Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Because of what happened, this sign was one that they were looking for and they believed that Jesus was Messiah. They started to believe because of, this is important, what they saw. And I want you to know right now that Christianity is an informed faith. It's not believing in belief. It was based on what people saw. It was real. It was seeing because of believing. 
in the first century, no one believed because of faith. In the first century, they believed because of what they saw. As evidenced by the story of Lazarus, believing was the result of seeing. Seeing all the things that Jesus had done. So the next day, it's no longer just a large crowd. It's a great crowd. It's a a bigger crowd came for the festival and they heard that Jesus, that Jesus was on his way then to Jerusalem. This was all that everyone was talking about. They were talking about this guy that, that did these great things and here he is and we have proof. We have seen it with our own eyes and as things begin to get more and more intense, the stage is set, emotions get higher. People who have malintent, they're looking to find him to get him out of the way. Jerusalem is buzzing. There are all kinds of people, not only just people that want to see Jesus, but ones that want to take him out. Jesus then begins his final trip into Jerusalem. And at that point, the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. This whole Jesus thing is as they watched what was going on around and as people were more and more crowds were following, Jesus had said, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. (laughs) And they had no idea that 2,000 years later, all around the world, people would go after. Jesus. It was much, much larger than they could ever imagine. The whole world had, in fact, gone after him. Now, Jesus is going with his disciples, and before they get into Jerusalem, he's, he's kind of walking in, they're talking, and they're doing, doing the things that they did, I guess, uh, telling stories or asking what's next or how does this work, and, and they were on their way up, Mark says, to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way again. And so Jesus was leading the way and they're going into Jerusalem. This was not the first time. And it's also not the first time that he kind of pulled the car over to the side of the road and said, hey kids, let's get out and let's sit under this tree for a little bit. And let's talk about something. So Jesus took the twelve. He took them aside and he then began to explain to them what was going to happen to him. He said, hey guys, I don't know if you noticed, but we're going to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And those Gentiles, they're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And at that moment, the disciples must have gone, what is he talking about? Didn't we just see Lazarus? What are you talking about? We're going into Jerusalem. Did you see the people? Did you feel the energy? We could feel the energy. And we're going into Jerusalem and there's a crowd waiting for us. Not the bad crowd, the good crowd, the one that wants to 
cheer and celebrate. And they're like, what is he thinking? What's he talking about? This is crazy. This is unimaginable. They had this momentum going. There's a large, scratch, a very large crowd following them. There was a crowd waiting for them there. They're kind of like, Jesus, did did you forget? Did you forget? And after Jesus has finished this discussion, talking about what would happen to the Son of Man, then two guys, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus and they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) Any parent knows that's a really bad statement to begin with, right? Hey, listen, I I got something that I want. I, I just want you to say yes before you even know what it is, right? And they're thinking, okay, um, all right, that was weird what he just said. Um, you know, I kind of hate that whole spitting, flogging, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but hey, Jesus, I, I really hate that that's going to happen, but I got a favor to ask. And that kind of runs into the way that we pray sometimes. Much like our prayers, we go, God, you're amazing, you're good, and, and you know, uh, yeah, you have all these amazing things going on, but hey, I need a favor. And Jesus replied to them, what do you want me to do for you? So they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Hey, Jesus, after, uh, after that, that rough stuff, that mocking, that spitting, that flogging, that dying thing, um, do you think you could give us positions of authority in your organization? Do you, do you think, because, uh, right, that, that's where it's headed, right? Uh, I mean, the, all this energy, all these things going on. So this is going to turn into something big. And, and I want in on the uh, ground level here. And as this pyramid scheme starts to build, I, I want to be at the top. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. And they're like, yeah, we do. We want the top share. We want to be at the right and the left. Uh, we know what we're asking. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. They don't know that the glory will precede the glory. That the hard comes first. Sure, God, we know exactly what we're asking. We can handle it. Then, you know what happens when somebody pulls Jesus aside there? Hey, hey, Jesus, you know, hey, we want to be, you know, one, two, one, two, or three, two, three, however that works. Anyway, you know, we we want that. And when the 10, the other, the remaining ones heard this, they became indignant with James and John. That's not like they were, you know, kicking them or anything like that. They're like, hey, me too. I want a place. I want, I, I want to be in front. I want to be the one that's there. Hey, listen, I, I know that James and John, you know, whatever, you know, but did, I heard what John said about you the other day. Anyway, but anyway, I, I want to be in that spot. They were afraid that someone would get in front of them. So Jesus says, all right, I'm going to pull you off to the side of the road again. And Jesus then puts them under the tree and he says, Let's have a talk. Jesus said to them, called them together, and he said this. Mm -hmm. 
And what we're about to hear and what we're about to read is something that I think as Christians, we need, we need to understand. And as a, as a, a minister, this is very important to know, to live. But if you're in here and you're not a Christian, maybe one of the reasons that you're not a Christian is because of Christians' failure to embrace what Jesus had to say next. Our failure to embrace may be why someone left in the first place. Jesus said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, listen, you know, here's how it goes. Those at the top, they have the power and the resources flowing up for their benefit. You know, that's how it works. And they're like, yeah, that's why we asked. And he looks at them and he looks at you and he looks at me and he says these next five powerful words, not so with you. Now you're like, pastor, you can't count. That's four. (laughs) It's five Greek words, four English words, not so with you. It says, listen, you don't understand this quite yet. What I'm releasing is brand new. It is an upside down kingdom. It is an upside down moment where you leverage authority different. You take responsibility differently. You have a different plan, a different purpose in mind. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you, (laughs) that's me. I'm great. I want to be great. Can I be great? Disciples raise their hands all across, all across, I guess the tree. I mean, anyway, so I want to be great. I want to, I want all of these things. I want to be a ruler. I want to be the one that is greatest in your kingdom. Jesus says, whoever wants to be greatest among you must be your servant. Now to us, being a servant is a concept. The disciples, though, they knew servants. And <laughs> they said, here we are, we're at the front of the line. And now you're telling us to get in back? <laughs> and they said, that's not fun. And Jesus says, I'm not done. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. That's the back of the line. And before they could object, before they could say anything else, he said something that we all should memorize. He said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They had no idea that he meant that what was coming, what he had said, that he had meant it, literally. Jesus was the king who came to reverse the order of things. He then would lay down his life for his subjects and he would require his subjects to do the very same thing for one another. They got it. They finally got it. 
but it probably wasn't until later when they were already in Jerusalem. And in that moment, as they had walked through, they had this grand procession. There were palm fronds. There were people shouting Hosanna. There's all kinds of stuff happening. And they had gone into this place that was prepared, the upper room. And Jesus, after they'd been in there for a while, he got up and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And then it's in that moment, they kind of panicked. They're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even wash my feet. And we didn't wash his feet. And Jesus was about to do the very same thing that a servant would do. Peter protested, no, said Peter, you will never wash my feet, but he did. The one who would go and give his life knelt down in front of 12 pairs of dirty feet and he washed them one by one. It took a while. I can imagine no one spoke and everyone was extremely humbled because those same hands that were washing their feet, they knew what those hands could do. And Jesus used that opportunity as an, as an illustration of what he told them in that roadside chat. He illustrated one by one. When he had finished, he said this. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I your teacher, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he even restates this whole idea again that the son of man did not come to be served. He says it in the next verse. He says, very truly, I tell you, that no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Now that you know these things, he says, you'll be blessed if you will do them. He says, guys, there's gonna come a time when you think you're somebody, when you think that you're somebody special. And, and when that time's com time comes, I want you to remember this moment that I served you. And in that moment when you think that you are too good, too great, too, too whatever, I want you to go find some feet to wash. You know what? They did. The church served. We have the record of the, of the book of Acts as the church grew and served and did so many things. They put one another they, they, they did the one another's. They put someone else in front of them. They put the needs of others ahead of their own. Now, this other's first thing, this putting someone else's needs before your own, the Romans, as they observed what was going on with these followers of Jesus, that other's first mentality, it was appalling. Why? Why? In a culture that worshiped strength, that glowed, that glowed in victory, that talked about conquest, this 
people, this nation, this government. In time, though, as they watched this might makes right mentality, they watched what happened with these followers of Jesus. And as the kingdom started turning upside down, that kingdom introduced by Jesus, that thing that was once appalling then became appealing. Because in the moments when plagues hit, when difficulties arose, the Christians refused to abandon the sick. They cared for the orphans and the widows. They became known as people who acted with compassion, who treated others with kindness, generosity, equality, with dignity. And the thing that had once been appalling, that had become appealing, then became contagious. And that's how against all odds, a cult following a crucified leader with no, to- no territory, no military, and no authority, not only su- survived, but multiplied. This isn't natural. That is not the natural order of things, nor is this intuitive. It's the upside down kingdom of God where the first go last. But when we see it in leaders, we admire it. As Christians, we're called to live it. Not to be served, but to serve. Service begins with a question. It begins with the question that leaders are often asked, but rarely ask others. How can I help? Christians should ask this question often. We should ask it to those that we feel least expect it and oftentimes least deserve it. How can I help? Or to put it in a different way, as we think about the, all the things that we have at our disposal, we can say it this way, how can I leverage me for you? How can I, as a Christian, use my expertise, use my resources, use my gifts, use my abilities, my influence, everything that I have for you? How can I do something for you that you can't do for yourself? How can I leverage me for you? When we look at the me first world, when we look at the world and everyone is saying, look out for number one. And if you didn't know, I'm number one. And we ask that question, what can I do to help. Well, you can have the heart of your heavenly father who sent his son to serve, not be served. And I want us to sit in this moment. I want us to think on two questions. How can I help? And how can I leverage me for you. And I want us to take just this time 
And we're going to have just a moment of, of prayer, of some things that, that God has laid on our hearts. If we are people who are called according to the purpose of God and we are to reflect Jesus in our lives, then we should do the very thing that makes him a leader worth following so that others will follow. So how can I help? And how can I leverage me for you? Let's pray.